Thanks. Great to see you guys. If you're new here, my name's Britt, one of the pastors here. And uh, man, I'm just so thrilled uh, to see new folks every week and then see people who just, you've been calling Sunridge home for uh, so long. And uh, it's just great to grow alongside you and to meet a lot of the new faces out on the patio. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Um, I want to start uh, this morning by asking you a question. What makes you thankful? What makes you thankful? Often, it's people. What makes you unthankful? Often, it's people, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, think about the uh, most, uh, the happiest and saddest moments you had recently, or the most joy-filled or the most frustrating moments you've had this week. I would be willing to bet that people were involved in that. And uh, so if you've been with us, you know that last week we just started a little two-part series we're calling Simply Thanks. And my goal is the teacher on Sunday morning and as your pastor is just, I want to give you the best Thanksgiving you've had in a long time by helping you to remember how important this virtue is to us. Now, last week we talked about uh, cultivating thanks in our own heart. And how the ongoing work of what God is doing in our lives generates gratitude. And, and we saw, or we talked about, that um, you know, thankfulness is a choice. When I was a little kid, <clears throat> I was a full Davy Crockett fan. And I know that a lot of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. But the Disney streaming channel, that new channel, your kids are going to discover this. And I just wanted to be Davy Crockett so bad I had a little fake coonskin hat cap. I had the flintlock pistol and rifle, and uh, I had a telescope too, like a Davy Crockett telescope. And you know, I was thinking about that this week. My parents must have just thought, what a cute kid you are, you know. But uh, I would take that telescope often and look at it, look in it through the opposite way. Does every little kid do this, you know, just change things up? And um, that's what I want to do when it comes to thankfulness today. I want to look through the lens in the opposite direction. Because often we think about thankfulness being something that God's doing in us, but I want to talk about how we can create thankfulness in others. How we're part of that virtue kind of being catalyzed in other people. And some of you might say, well, is that even possible? Can I help other people be thankful? What? Let me ask you this. Can we, help other, can we cause other people to be miserable? Yeah. We can. Uh, think of the people in your life right now. Don't look next at the person next to you if they happen to be one that's making you miserable. Well, now maybe you should look at them so that they don't think that you're not looking at them because anyway. Uh, you think about uh, the people you work with, the people in your family that you're going to spend Thanksgiving with. By the way, I think all of us should bring up politics this Thanksgiving <laughs> in order to save on Christmas gifts. Which I, I saw that online. I thought that was funny. Um, you know, think about the people you work with or on your team. They either make you smile or not. You know, we have this thing now, modern times, caller ID, and your phone rings and you pick it up and you see the person, and you're either like, oh, it's, it's Bill. Or, oh, it's Larry. Sorry, Larry. 
you're a Larry here. Don't mean to pick on you. But, you know, it's like people either bring those kind of feelings that make us thankful or, or not. And I, that's what I want to talk about today, that we have the ability to do that. So my main thought today is that my life can cultivate thankfulness in others. My life can cultivate thankfulness in others. Now, I realize that none of us can make someone thankful, right? We can't make them be thankful. You might tell your children, say thank you. And, uh, but oftentimes, they don't even know what you're talking about, but they say it, you know, because you'll make them unthankful if they don't, right? But Jesus said this in Matthew 5.13 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, if we removed all the metaphorical language here that Jesus is using, I think that what he just said could boil down to this simple statement. I have strategically placed you so that you can live in a way that causes the people around you to be thankful to God. I want you to notice the way Jesus said it. It's not just a possibility. It's a command. This is a purpose to live with. How do I do that? When I want to fill in the blanks, I'm often drawn to the Apostle Paul's writings. And uh, we, we say this, you know, frequently when we refer to his writings, that he's the most prolific writer in your New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, pretty much the whole second half of your Bible or New Testament is all the letters of Paul. And if you don't know who the Apostle Paul was, he was a devout follower of a different religion, a persecutor of Christians, and he's remarkably and miraculously converted, and he becomes, instead of a persecutor of, of Christians, he's the guy that's going around starting churches, and he goes on these journeys in the known world at that time to start churches, to, to go. He went to places where Christ was not named. And these letters that we have in your New Testament are his letters specifically written back back to those churches that he either founded or he was a part of in some way and their specific advice and so it kind of fills in the blanks and that's what we're going to look at today in a letter that he wrote to the Thessal the church at Thessalonica a church that he founded on his second missionary journey with uh, a couple of other companions it was Silas and Timothy and in verse one he says Paul Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. Now, if you were with us last week, you, I, I mentioned that Paul often begins his letters with expressing thanks. By the way, I wonder how many of you were took the challenge, the thankfulness challenge last, this past week, and every morning when you woke up, you, you started by thanking God for something, and then, and then allowed 
your mind to just wander into the things that you were thankful for. I won't ask you to raise your hand because I'll be really discouraged. I actually did it at least three times this week. So um, anyway, Paul, Paul starts his letters like this. And here he's saying, I'm really thankful for you. When I pray for you, you believers at Thessalonica, I'm, I think thankful thoughts. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us here the specifics of why he is thankful for them. What, what was it about them that generated thankfulness in him? Are you ready? It's in verse 3, the next verse. He says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, when I think about you, this is what I think about. When I stop to think about you, I remember things about you. And those things that I remember well up in my heart and make me thankful to God because of how you live, because of who you are. And these things that he mentions, I believe, are the very things that if we live them out, we catalyze thankfulness in others. It has the same effect. And I think in the reverse is true as well. When we have these people in our lives, it generates thankfulness in our hearts towards God. The first one he mentions, he says, I remember your work produced by faith. Now, this word work in the original language is ergon, from which we get energy, the word energy. It's translated work or works. It can mean to do something. It can mean behaviors. And Paul is saying, when I think about you, I think about something that your faith generated in you something that you did. So we cultivate thankfulness in others when our faith does. When our faith does. Uh, any Bob Goff fans here? I love Bob Goff. He wrote the book Love Does, and it does. But faith does too. And when, when we have someone in our lives that is living out their faith in a growing way, and it's active, and it's transformative, when their faith is outwardly focused, not just inward, when we're around those kinds of people, it's like we feel thankful to have them in our lives. I think that that's an important fact to note because it's easy for us as Christians to think of faith, faith as something it's like, this is a list of things that I believe. This is, uh, this is what I know, and these are convictions that I hold or these are theolo the theology that I embrace. This is my faith that I stand on. But faith is so much more than that. It's all of those things. They are the, they're the basis of, of what we do. But a faith that is only belief or a faith that is just like a list of convictions or this is my moral stance on that, it's like, it's just pretty to look at. It, it doesn't really change anything. I think about faith like that, like these, um, I don't know what you call them, the cakes that are super beautiful. 
you know, these designer cakes. They're, they're so gorgeous. Yes, I, re I see these things. And, you know, I look at those as like, man, that's such a cool, how did they do that? But have you ever eaten one of those cakes? They never taste good. They're dry inside. And I think that faith that is all about what we know and faith is all about just like this list of beliefs. It's like a dry, beautiful cake. When you cut into it, it's just not very tasty. It's nothing like Costco cake. <laughs> Man, for $14, you can get a lot of happiness out of a Costco cake. And I personally think they're beautiful. I always want the balloon area because it has extra icing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up. And a faith that is just what you know, a faith that's just like having more and more information that doesn't do something. It's like a beautiful cake that's all dried out inside. The truth is most of us are educated far beyond our level of obedience, right? So we just think knowing more, knowing more, knowing more. Faith is more than knowing. Faith is doing. Now Paul isn't saying here just do stuff. It's not about the stuff we do. What Paul is addressing is what does our faith do in us? Because when faith is doing something in us, we do something. I think about so many people that I know that when I think about them, their faith makes me thankful. I think about one of our students that's in college right now on a, on a baseball scholarship. And when he showed up at his university, uh, his team had a losing mentality. And you know what his answer was to that? I'm going to start a Bible study. He started a Bible study with his baseball team. And he has almost all of his baseball team, Christians and not, coming to this Bible study. I think about uh, last weekend I went down to Door of Faith with uh, 20 of us down to an orphanage in Mexico. And one of the uh, people that went along with us, she's in her 60s. And we got to talking as we were walking up this really steep hill to uh, where we were staying. And she, she was telling me, you know, I have never done anything like this. I was so afraid to do this. It's so out of my comfort zone. And I'm having such a ball. I'm thinking about the military family that's in our church. That, you know, it's hard to be a military family. I, my heart goes out to you and you guys are like on my radar all the time. Because... You go into a community, and it's, it's pretty easy to just go, you know, we're just going to lay low because we're only going to be here for a year, two, three years. But this family's fully engaged. She is, her whole heart is in with our MOPS group, our mothers of preschoolers. And, you know, her husband, a Marine, is up there teaching your kids right now. Their faith does. I'm thinking about the people that I know that their marriage is struggling, and yet they're processing that through their faith. Their faith is doing. I'm thinking about the dad that I know that coaches baseball and he runs a side business because he loves his family. I'm thinking about the new Christians that have signed up and have started volunteering in our children's ministry. And I'm thinking about the mom and grandma that has been holding babies in our nursery for over 30 years. 
I'm thinking about our community of Mission of Hope uh, trip last weekend. Last Sunday, 50 of us went to uh, Mission of Hope, and we packaged up food and everything. And I'm telling you, we blew it. We blew them away. Our crew was doing it. It was a flurry of activity, and I was just watching all these people with big smiles on their face. We were moving so fast and working so hard, it was dangerous. OSHA would have shut us down because, man, we had these trays, these boxes that were going down the conveyor belt, and if you didn't do your job quick, your hand was going to get smashed. And one of our guys was like at the, at the forefront of this shouting out orders with a big smile on his face, and his wife told him this week, you know, you were even bossing the pastor around. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you were, and that was awesome. Their faith does. You know, there's a faith that does, and then there's a faith that doesn't. James wrote about that. He said, that, dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That faith can't save anyone. You know, there, that faith is not life-giving. Not to anyone else and not to the person that has that kind of faith. If you're, if you're a Christian and, you know, your faith has just gotten kind of dry, you just kind of like falling behind or you're just getting bored. I want to say to you, stir something up in your heart because that is the key. Jesus told a story in Mark 4, talked about a farmer who scattered seed. And he said that some of that seed fell on ground where the birds came and gobbled it up right away and some fell on uh, dirt that was really hard and so it sprouted a root but it dried up because it, its root couldn't really sink and uh, some of it fell among thorns and eventually those thorns and bushes choked out the life of the plant that was trying to grow and some of it was really fruitful and you know the difference in the story that Jesus told was it wasn't the farmer's fault it wasn't the seed that was involved it was the soil it fell on and the soil that God's word falls on is our heart. And I think the key for us is to keep our hearts churned up, to let God continue to turn us over. And that keeps, that keeps the ground of our lives fertile and, and able to produce something of value. I went to uh, our home center recently and I bought some dirt. So, like, this is full suburban life. You go and you buy dirt in a bag, right? And uh, there's all kinds of brands. It's mind-boggling. Which dirt do you buy? You have so many options. Well, I bought Supersoil. I mean, who wouldn't be attracted to that name? And if you read on there, if you, if you use this, it's not just regular soil. I mean, there's ordinary soil down the road, down, down the aisle, but you've got to get Supersoil because it will make your stuff grow. It's, it will make the ground stay, like, you know, loose so that things can grow really well, and there's so, much, so many nutrients in it. It's just going to sprout. My, my tomatoes and my hydrangeas are going to grow like crazy because I have super soil. The soil's the key. We've got to let our hearts continually, to, to be continually churned over by God. If you're wondering whether you're cultivating thanks, in someone else, ask yourself this question. Does my faith do? Second thing Paul mentions, he says, 
I'm thankful for your labor prompted by love. And labor here, it's not the same as works. This is, uh, it means laborious. It can mean bothersome. It can mean costly. And when we love, you know, if, if you love someone, if you have a meaningful and a lasting relationship, you know that love costs you. Love can be bothersome. Love can be labor. In fact, we say it's a labor of love. We cultivate thankfulness in others when our love sticks. When our love sticks. See, Paul moves from faith being out here as a thing that we believe, it's something that we do, but now he also says the type of life that generates thankfulness in others is a personal and connected life. Someone that is in your life that you can count on. We're thankful when we have people in our lives that we know we can count on them. And if you have someone like that, you're likely thankful to God. In fact, if you took my thankfulness challenge this week, probably some of those names that came to mind or people that have just gone the distance with you. If you have a spouse in your life, or a boss, or a coworker, or a friend that you know you can count on, you're probably thankful. But the opposite is true too. If you're going through a divorce, or you know or you're doubting whether that person has your back, or you're in a work relationship where you know, people are cutthroat and they're undermining you, you know how miserable your life can be. We cultivate thankfulness in others when we're the, when we're the kind of people that our love sticks with them. Because when it comes to love, talk is cheap. There's some people that are so gifted at saying the loving things, and you know, they, they just have a way with words. I've never felt like I have that. I try to steal from everybody else and then cobble it together so that I sound original. But I'm just not good with words. Some people are. And so like someone like me, it's like, you know, how do I say the loving thing? I don't know. But you know what we can all do? We can all be the kind of person that someone can really count on. We can all love in a way that sticks with people. You know, ne next week, we're going to start a Christmas series, and I can't wait to get started with it. We're calling it Advent Conspiracy. This is something that uh, a lot of churches, actually thousands of churches have done over the last 10 years. To con we're going to conspire against our culture so that we put the real meaning back in Christmas. We're not ending Christmas. We're not anti-Christmas. We're just going to give it back to whom it belongs. I can't wait for us to do that series. But one of the gifts of Christmas, one of the, one of the thoughts that we talk about every year, is when Christ came, it's like he, he is incarnate. He's the incarnation, God with us. It's one of the greatest promises God has given us. Jesus said, I am with you. And it's not just that he's with us. It means that he's in it with us. 
I'm a fan of the Old Testament. I love stories. I love like how faith becomes real. You see these real people in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the stories that I'm fascinated by is King David. And you may know that name, but you know, you've heard of King David or David who uh, killed the giant Goliath. But uh, he ended up having a friend that was closer than a brother named Jonathan. Now this friend was the king's son, a rival of David. Who, the king was jealous of David because he was chosen by God to be the next king, and Saul was, was fearful of him and jealous of him. And it's his son that ends up being David's best friend. And in 1 Samuel 18, 1, it says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. I love that. I love that because that's two dudes, two warriors that lock arms together and say, I got your back. And when Jonathan did that, he placed his life in grave danger by being a friend to David. He risked losing his inheritance. In fact, he did. David was the next king. Jonathan could have been the next king. Often he's placed in this uncomfortable position of choosing the moral thing over his family. And the moral thing is often connected to what David is doing. And Jonathan chooses that. And this man that we know so well, David, that we know him as... We did a series about this. You can see it in our archives. I, I call David the Renaissance man. I mean, the guy could do everything. He was a warrior. He was an artist. He was a musician. He could dance. You know that part of his story. His wife got jealous at him because he busted out some moves. Like he could do anything. So we know David, but what we don't know is that often this great man, this man after God's own heart, is sustained by his friendship with Jonathan. Love sticks. True love sticks, and when it does... It creates thankfulness in others. I think about um, one of our members who's a home group leader recently, tragically lost an adult child. And I watched how the people around him and you know, their home group surrounded that family in love. I think about people that I've known that they've had Alzheimer's in their family. And I've watched the spouse or the kids Hang in there and care for that parent or that husband or wife. Thinking about the people in my life that have a word of encouragement and not just criticism. I think about the people that I know are struggling in their marriage and yet they're, they're saying, you know, we're in a low spot. But we committed our love to one another and we're going to figure it out. I think about how our crew here that's involved in our uh, MOPS ministry, the Mothers of Preschoolers, how they just hang, like the way that they serve one another. They work so hard every other Tuesday to put on this event for almost 100 moms. Like, and, yet, and they have each other's back constantly. They fill in the blanks. Love sticks. 
I got to go there if I'm talking about love. The Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you might know this is the love passage. He writes this, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. It's not rude. Love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of when it's been wronged. It's never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And then notice the big ending, folks. Love will last forever. If you have someone in your life that their love, you're confident that their love will last forever, you're thankful. And if you have somebody that has bailed on you, you know how that can affect your spirit. In fact, let's just take a moment and reread this kind of with the antonyms in mind and see what a difference it makes. You know, there, what if there's someone in your life who's impatient and they speak unkind words and they're often jealous of you? In fact, they're constantly putting you down and boasting about themselves. And they're rude. In fact, when you're with them, they have to have their way all the time. And when they don't get it, they're really irritable about it. But anything that you've ever done to them, they remind you of it constantly. In fact, they're so self-centered that they don't even care if it's fair. It doesn't even have to be based on the truth. It could be false, but as long as they get their way, and you're constantly in fear of this person that they will give up on you even though you're depending on them and they're constantly telling you how you let them down. And you can tell they don't believe in you. And you, you know that they're not going to be with you forever. It's different. One sucks the life out of you and the other lifts you. in a way that makes life so much sweeter. It makes you thankful to have that person. If you're someone whose love sticks, then I can promise you someone is thanking God for you this week. Last thing Paul mentions he's, that he says that, uh, made him think thankful thoughts is your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the endurance here is just like you think of an athlete. It's like they can go through the pain, can bear up underneath it, stay under the load. And the truth is, we all have trials, right? We all are going to struggle at times. The key here is like how we get through them. We cultivate thankfulness in others when our hope floats. When our hope floats. It's not so much like I'm like giddy all the time. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's Paul's intention. Um, it's how we respond to these down times. In fact, more importantly, I think what Paul is getting is what is the agency? What is the thing that we lean on as we go through it, through this broken world? The way he puts it, he says, you have an endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus. 
But you know, this is more than just suck it up, buttercup, right? It's, it's more than living this latida life where everything's butterflies and flowers and happiness. It's not thinking positively all the time. And it's not this Pollyannish kind of a, a, another Disney uh, reference, uh, this unrealistic perspective. The thing that's prominent here is not the challenge that people, that these believers are facing. It's, it's how the hope of Christ gives them something different in it, how there's a brightness that comes through. And remember that Paul is writing this to a group of believers that are extremely challenged. They're still under the oppression of Rome. Uh, they are persecuted. They're, they're, they're still, the, by far, the majority of the religious world is occupied by the dry and judgmental Pharisees. And yet, there's something in them that enables them to go through these dips with a brightness, with a buoyancy in their hearts. I think about a couple I know in our church well into their 90s, in their 90s. And when they come to church, they just have a big smile on their face. They were missionaries. He was a World War II pilot. They, their lives have not been easy. And yet there's something that comes, like you just want to be around them. I think about uh, someone I know that she's had cancer twice in her life. And she's, wherever she goes, she's still like this, it's like this bright sun, bit of sunshine that comes through. I'm thinking about somebody that I know that was in a, in an, a relationship of abuse for over 20 years. And a couple of years ago, she gave herself permission to move out of that and she's rediscovering love. But she's not a bitter person. There's a joy that comes out of her in spite of what her history was. I'm thinking about a, a family that lost their dad and their husband to cancer just in the last month or so. And they show up every Sunday and serve. And it's not like they're, they're giddy with joy and, you know, they're brokenhearted, but... There's something that comes through. I think it's the hope of Christ. Their hope floats. And when their hope, you know what that does to me? And you have these people in your life too. It makes me thankful. Paul often writes about the hope of Jesus Christ in his letters. In Colossians 1.5, he says, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. I love, again, how Paul stitches together these three virtues. You might see them on our T-shirts, faith, hope, and love. But he says here that there's a hope in the gospel. That hope is that not only do we have the promise of eternal life, we have the promise that God is with us and not just with us, but for us. And not just for us, but he promises to redeem those things that are normally hope stealers. If you're not a Christian, you know, with, 
without giving you 20 apologetic reasons or going into the science of the Bible or anything, can I, can I just ask you this? Do you have hope? Do you have a hope that elevates you beyond what life has brought to you? Because as a Christians, that's something unique about Christianity, that we have a hope that enables us to endure. You know, you can initiate a relationship with God. You can start a life built on the hope of having the gospel and that God is in your life with a simple prayer by just praying. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to say it in front of anybody, but just by saying, God, I need hope. And I invite you into my life. And I, I can't do it without you. I need you. And you know, if you do that, God promises that his Holy Spirit will come to indwell you. And your circumstance may not change, but who you are will begin to change because Christ is in you. And the thing that will be changing you is the hope of Jesus Christ. A word on hope for those of us who struggle by being hopeful in this time. It's like, don't hurry hope. You know, I think that there's a sequence. I've, there, there's faith, then there's hope, then there's love. When you're in the middle of a storm, it's not the time for hope. When, when the earth is being scorched around you, it's just trust. All you can do is hold on to your faith in that time and say, God, I'm just holding on to you. I, it's not the time for hope. But I've, you know, I've seen these areas that have been completely scorched by fire. And it, as far as your eye can see, it's nothing but black and ashes. But I've noticed that in all those areas, eventually green things sprout because rain falls. And some of the things that happen in fire drive nutrients into the ground and release seeds that can grow. And eventually little green things start popping up. I think that that is a great analogy for life that in the time when you're when you're just being clobbered just trust god and then as we've been talking about let god continue create an environment in your life that allows god to bring hope don't force it and what you'll find is like hope will start to sprout up and eventually your life will be totally regenerated with God's hope and his love. When we live by the hope of the gospel, we're changed from the inside out. And our perspective changes. And our light shines. And when our light shines, we inspire others to be thankful to God. Hope might be one of the most precious gifts God gives us. And I know for sure it might be, it's one of the most precious gifts we can give to others. A faith that does, a love that sticks, and a hope that floats. You know, these believers, when, when Paul thought about them, it was these things about them, about them that caused him to be thankful. Their lives were rich in thankfulness to God because of what God was doing in their life. And that thankfulness in them made Paul thankful. But you know, the story doesn't end there. 
Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, and so you, you believers, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Their thankfulness went viral. That's something. If, if God is doing a work in me, if I choose thankfulness and allow him to churn my heart over, you know what happens to that thankfulness? It spills out onto those around us. I wonder if from this group of people that's here right now, if there couldn't be like a viral con a contagion of thankfulness that spreads around this community, just like this, this group of believers in this little area, there, the word of what God was doing in them spread everywhere. What if we were like that? That's, that's what I want. I want to be that person. I bet you do too. Let's, this Thanksgiving and far beyond, obviously, let's let God cultivate thankfulness in us. And when he does, let's look for opportunity to allow that to spill out onto others. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray.